you're listening to Unraveling Rachel. This podcast is all about this journey that we call life and how we can live it more authentically so that it sucks less and feels better. Sounds good, huh? Hi there, my friends. I am recording to you from my shelter in place, day number I have no idea of quarantining, staying inside. It's given me a lot of time to think and to connect with people and to examine my thoughts on so many things in life that go a lot deeper than just what's happening right now in this time of panic because I realized that what's happening is unprecedented, um, at least in my lifetime. You know, I wasn't around for the Great Depression or the Spanish flu, so this is like a really big thing. But it's also, as I mentioned in the last episode that I did, it's also very much about how I choose to think about it. And I can apply the same sort of Um, taming of my thoughts that I applied to getting diagnosed with cancer and going through that big surgery and making it through that, that I, uh, I can apply that here. Um, So that's how I'm staying calm. And that's uh, not what I want to talk about actually in this episode. Um, But I mentioned it because in part of this is I had this idea before that Um, I didn't have a lot of time to call people. (laughs) Now I have all the time in the world, kind of. Um, That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but now I certainly have a lot more time and I still find myself hesitating to pick up the phone uh, at times. And then thinking about it and getting over it and just doing it and finding out that, oh my gosh, that was exactly what I needed. And so that has been the case, especially when it comes to talking with my grandma. I have spent several hours on the phone with her, uh, several hour long phone calls, which has been just an amazing blessing. Um, And getting to hear her perspective on life, hear her history, what she's going through, to hear her talk about um, her perspective of life as it's unfolding right now. And I know that grandma's gonna listen to this Uh, because I told her I would send her um, a CD with all of my podcasts on it. So try not to give away too much here or um, share too much. But um, she lives in a multi-generational home, uh, the only home that I can ever remember my grandparents being in. And she lives there with two of her daughters and one of her daughter's um, two sons and one of her son's Uh, girlfriend and great and uh, child so her great-grandchild and when we were speaking last she was talking about wishing that she had hugged uh, her children and us grandchildren more and that she hugs this baby as much as possible and just how important touch is for us as humans and this is also something that I've been thinking about lately as we've been physical distancing like I've seen my partner Graham, but I haven't touched him. And I miss touch, I miss a hug. I, when I feel anxious, I just want somebody to squeeze me. 
that is such a human thing. It's why we're seeing the rise of these weighted blankets because anxiety is energy that isn't contained. And, and when we contain it, when we put a little pressure on it, it's soothing. It's like a hug. A hug feels good because there's something that we can't control. There's something that we're feeling. There's something that doesn't feel grounded. And when someone hugs us, when someone brings us into that energy, we feel that, oh, I'm okay. I'm here in this body. I can feel this breath. I know that I'm here. You know, it's like it brings us into the physical. And if we don't get enough of that when we're young, if we don't get that reassurance that we're here, it's okay, we are connected to someone, it has a lot of um, long-term effects, you know, like leading to feelings of chronic anxiety, not feeling okay and not knowing why, not being able to focus attention, not being able to trust in ourselves or in other people or in the world, um, not being able to really like physically connect our bodies to the earth or to um, feel our relationship to food or to answer our um, natural biological impulses with assurance. And so my conversation with my grandma really just dovetailed beautifully with both the nervous system learning that I've been doing and um, what I read in uh, two episodes ago. I think it was episode number 25 about the root chakra. So I read a little bit of um, the uh, about chakra one from Eastern Body, Western Mind by Anadea Judith. And I read mostly about um, like the characteristics of the root chakra. And I was inspired last night to open this book again to um, like the second part of this chapter, which is called Growing the Lotus. And it's all about developmental formation of the first chakra. And so I wanted to uh, read this for you and I'm going to read it and give a little commentary on how I'm experiencing some of this, how I see the world experiencing some of this, and I'm going to bring some of my grandmother's wisdom into it as well. So um, just so that it's not so, <laughs> we're talking about grounding here and, and being rooted, but it can also get a little heady, a little esoteric, and I really want to make sure that we can connect to it um, from where we're at right now in, in what we're experiencing. So um, developmental formation of the first chakra at a glance. Um, the age that this occurs is in the womb to 12 months. From, so basically from the time of conception to one year of age, this is the formation of that chakra. So before the baby is even separate from the mother. Uh, the tasks involved are physical growth and motor development and bonding. Needs and issues addressed here are trust, nourishment, safety, and the right to be here. Like the very right to exist. Here we go. A game of pretend. Allow yourself 
for a moment to enter the experience of the newborn infant. You have just left the warm and dark womb where everything was provided for you and emerge now into dazzling light and cold. You open your eyes and see blurred images, hear sounds louder than you have ever before heard. You're scared and hungry. Some basic instinct draws your mouth to a breast and you suck your first juices of life, warm milk flowing into your empty belly. You relax, temporarily feeling safe. You have begun your lifelong journey with the most difficult task of all, getting born. For the first several months of your life, you can't do anything for yourself. You understand nothing and have almost no control over your body or surroundings. You can't speak the language, so you can neither communicate nor understand anything said to you, yet your life depends on getting your needs met. Though you gradually master simple tasks, this is your basic state during the first year of life. The meeting of your needs is beyond your control, yet you need everything. There is a frightening feeling that was not present in the womb. Things are not provided automatically as they were in the womb. There are periods of hunger, cold, discomfort, and pain. Whether these needs are miraculously met creates your psychological foundation for relating to the world, trust or mistrust. Because you do not understand the mechanism for getting your needs met, crying is simply automatic and unintentional at this stage. The issue of trust versus mistrust becomes a basic experience of your very self. This is your first vague sense of whether or not you're glad to be here. Trust or mistrust is the basic element of your first chakra program, which is a foundation for all other programs that follow. Trust enables your body to unfold from its cramped position, allows security and calm, and encourages connection, bonding, and exploration. With trust, the survival instinct is satisfied and there's a sense of emotional well-being. If you are confident that the world is a friendly place, you have the sense that you will live. Without trust, your survival feels constantly threatened and because there is nothing you can do to meet the threat, the anxiety is unbearable. So I want to pause for a second here. Um, Without trust, your survival feels constantly threatened, and because there is nothing you can do to meet that threat, the anxiety is unbearable. And this becomes formed into a pattern that we carry into our adult lives, as she pointed out here, that this becomes the foundation on which everything is built. So it's like the lens that we sense everything through. It's, um, you know, sometimes... I know I've experienced this sense of like, just something's wrong, something's wrong. I don't really understand. And I feel like there's nothing I can do about it. I don't even know what it is. And I think it comes from that, <clears throat> pardon me, that, that early programming that was accepted into my psyche really without my consent, just by nature of the way that things happened because perhaps my needs weren't met, my um, primary caregivers didn't understand what I needed, and that is because maybe their primary caregivers didn't understand what they needed. They didn't learn. So um, this, I'm going to draw back to the um, course on the nervous system that I'm doing about how 
when we're young, in this early developmental stage, we are getting our primary wiring in the vagus nerve from our caregiver. So if our caregiver doesn't have a well-attuned nervous system and they're not able to um, stay calm and comfort us and respond to our biological impulses and respond with energy that we can understand because we're pre-verbal here. We don't understand words. We only understand energy. And if they can't do that, then our needs aren't being met and we're going into freak out mode. And, and it's like literally survival. Uh, you know, are we going to survive? Am I going to get fed? Am I going to get warm? We don't have those thoughts, but the nervous system is keeping track of those things and it's getting embedded into um, our, our subconscious. I want to share another thing here about um, how that, that's why he's just saying, it's okay. It's okay. Saying the words like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. um, Doesn't, it's not effective to a child because they don't know what that means. And if you're saying, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Oh my gosh, shut up, shut up. What they're feeling is, is that, that energy, you know, you can hear it in my voice, you can hear it. And it's very agitating and it's far more upsetting than it's okay. I've got you. I'm holding you. It's steady. Maybe I don't know what you want, but I'm going to I'm going to help you feel safe and then we'll try some things. Now, please, I've never I'm not a mother. Um I'll never have children. Um but I do understand what it's like to have needs from that place and what has helped me calm. So that's where I'm coming from. And my commentary is certainly not meant to be um, like, I know how to do this or um, to uh, make anyone feel like they've done it wrong or um, yeah, to feel less than in any way. Okay. So um, I'm also going to share a quote on the side here um, about this time of life. The task at this time is to help the child come fully into her body, develop a sense of trust in her caretakers, and a sense of safety about the world around her. Stanley Kellerman. So trust and safety, that is the job of the primary caregiver at this, at this point is to make that baby feel loved and wanted and safe and like it can trust that the world will tend to its needs or that that their needs can be met out there in the world um and i'm going to read this other quote which is also a side note by the same person stanley kellerman and i've shared this on my instagram before our family determines how we find our ground how we form our territory. If we do not have plenty of touching and holding, we may never be sure of ourselves emotionally, of the ground that we stand on, since we cannot trust others to hold us. People who are not held enough have a fear of falling and hold themselves stiffly away from the earth. And I've shared before that I don't, I know I, I have had a fear of falling. I don't like heights. Um, and I definitely hold myself stiffly away from the earth. That is something that I've been bringing more attention to is how are my feet connected to the ground? 
are my heels connected to the ground? Because I'll tend to be like more on my tiptoes sometimes or I tiptoe up to reach something when I don't really need to. I can actually reach from my center. I don't need to go away from the ground to do it. So um, it's an interesting observation. Um, I don't know if anyone else has ever experienced that, but I'd love to hear from you. Um, Okay, I'm going to continue reading now and try and keep this episode not too crazily long. The substance of survival, feeding, holding, warmth, and physical comfort must come from outside of you. This is provided by your roots, meaning your parents, family, and caretakers. The degree to which parents succeed at this task depends a great deal on the kind of support they received as infants and children and what kind of support system they have for themselves while you are young. Are grandparents helpful and supportive? Is there adequate money for the family to take care of needs? Does the mother have to work? Does she eat well while pregnant and nursing? All of these things affect your first chakra development. In the first few months of life, your nervous system responds instinctually. Signals come from within your body, hunger, cold, discomfort, and are communicated spontaneously through movement or crying. Your consciousness is not developed enough to block any flow of energy. You are utterly open as you have not yet learned to filter out anything unwanted. Your infant body is literally flooded with aliveness or charge. It is from this state that you form your first chakra and the very beginnings of self. Okay, so I'm going to pause again because I spoke a little bit to that just now that um, our parents' wiring, their experience creates our wiring and it's their wiring is based on their parents' situ- uh, wiring and then also what's happening in their environment and the sense of safety that they have, how they're nourished and all of that. Um, and that we just take it in because we have no consciousness to filter it through. We don't have any critical thinking. We are just pure energy. We are pure life force and we are just responding to our biological needs in order to get them met. We don't say, okay, I'm going to cry right now to get fed. It's just, I'm going to cry. Actually, <laughs> even that, there, we just cry. The, the thought isn't there. It's just like biological impulses coming up. And I'm relating this now to the work in the nervous system course um, where the most basic thing that we start doing is feeling our feet on the ground and paying attention to our impulses. And I notice that there are times when I'm thirsty, when I've got to go to the bathroom, that I just don't. My consciousness now blocks the flow of that natural energy. And it is a flow of energy. It's a flow of of toxic energy out of the body to have to use the restroom. It is um, a flow of cleansing energy into the body to take a sip of water. Um, Breathing. If I'm holding my breath, I'm not cleansing the body. I'm, I'm restricting flow of energy. And um, in my view of my cancer, I see that as a major stagnation of energy on many levels, which is something that I'll share later. So in, in, in this parenting, in this uh, formation of 
our root chakra, we learn how it is that energy can flow through our body in this world. Um, and I think that's where our first uh, stagnations and whatnot start. Okay, I'm going to continue reading. Environment as self. For the developing fetus, the uterus is the first experience of body, the first home and environment, and the ground of being from which life emerges. For this reason, this environment has an important and often overlooked influence on first chakra development. The mother's nutritional balance and her emotional states during pregnancy play a role in the texture of the child's personal ground. When the womb is tight, the infant learns to contract her own body. When the mother is afraid or tense, chemicals flow through the uterine environment, stimulating a level of heightened energy that becomes a normal baseline state for the fetus inside. If the mother uses substances like tobacco, alcohol, or drugs, the child inside uses them too. So my mom smoked with me. I don't know if she drank. Um, and I don't have, I've done womb meditations and I can go back and I feel tightness. And that is something that stays with me um, through my life has stayed with me is this feeling of like tightness and contractedness um like not being able to fully be born into the world okay i'm going to continue now birth is the gateway into life and the beginning of individuality it is the first step in our lifelong journey and has a marked effect on how we feel about that journey Yet the infant is not aware of that individuality for quite some time. For the first five to six months, she remains in a state of fused identity and has no concept of a separate self. The mother's body, voice, touch, and general presence are all part of a unified, undifferentiated whole experience of life. The state of both mother and environment become literally the first experience of self. If the mother is warm and attentive, the environment comfortable and supportive, then this is how we experience ourselves. The charge flowing through us is warm, exciting, and positive. If the mother is cold and cruel and the environment is painful, then our first experience of life and of self have a negative charge. This programming provides a basic building block of all further development and is why first chakra issues show up in all the chakras that follow. If reflexive body gestures and sounds, such as crying, produce relief in the form of food, warmth and, warmth, and comfort, then the continuity between inside and outside remains unbroken, and the fused state continues until there is enough awareness and motor development to begin separating. If the child is unable to get her needs met, then she develops growing distrust of the outer world and dissociation from the inner world and a feeling of helplessness and inadequacy at the core of her being. The need for the inner and outer worlds to remain consistent is extreme in the young child for many years to come, but especially during a period when there is no distinction. If our instinctual impulses do not get us the things we need in order to survive, we learn to distrust or ignore them, and simultaneously perceive the world as hostile. To distrust our basic instincts, is to put ourselves at odds with the deep core of our physical being. It puts us at odds with our ground and the natural world. Gosh, I'm pausing here. Little commentary. How do we see that 
in our world, wow, um, distrusting our basic instincts and putting us at odds with the deep core of our physical being and at odds with our ground and the natural world. We're so at odds with the earth right now. I mean, I can see just in my own self, as I mentioned, how I can be at odds with my natural impulses. I mean, I get the impulse to nap and I resist, resist, resist. I think part of that comes from not wanting to miss anything, always wanting to do something. And I can think back to when I was young, um, I wouldn't want to sleep because I didn't know what would happen. Uh, I didn't know if my dad would come home. Um, it just didn't feel safe. So there's that part of it. Um, and oh, my eye just started twitching. I feel like that's bringing something up there. But um, I also wanted to mention here that this is why crying is actually good for a baby. A baby that doesn't cry often is is not there's some reason I mean I don't know why I'm, I'm not I'm going to do a little disclaimer here I'm not a medical expert I am not a doctor but you know you read this and you think about it if a baby is crying to get its needs met um there are going to be times when it's hungry it needs to cry it needs change it's going to cry and a parent can be very attuned and on it so maybe the baby isn't crying quite as much because the parent knows when to have it in its onesie when to have it swaddled when to feed it um, but they're not always going to know and so it's important this is how we learn that it's okay to speak up and when we speak up that our needs will be met it's that trust and mistrust um, and it, it runs deep, deep, deep into our lives. Um, so just wanting to have a child that doesn't fuss and doesn't cry is um, a little misguided, in my opinion. Okay, I'm going to continue here. Erickson named this first struggle of life trust versus mistrust and described its healthy resolution as a feeling of hope. Hope is the enduring belief in the attainability of primal wishes. Hope gives us confidence, enthusiasm, positive thinking, and excitement about life. It is the essential essence needed to thrive and move forward. The developmental tasks at this stage center around learning to operate the body as the basic vehicle of life. Awareness, coming down from the seventh chakra, is initially focused on the body itself as the child discovers her hands, feet, fingers, and toes. She learns through instinct to suck, grasp, roll over, sit up, creep, crawl, and walk. The child also learns to make contact with the physical world by grasping and moving objects, learning to handle a bottle or cup, using the sides of the crib to pull herself upright. She eventually learns that objects continue to exist even when she can't see them. The first chakra program is pre-verbal, pre-conceptual, reflexive, and instinctual. Piaget, I should learn how to say this one day. Piaget called it the sensory motor period, where awareness is sensory and the task is motor development. At about six months, an amazing change takes place. The child sits up and becomes vertical on her own for the first time. The chakras are now stacked up on each other and the energy begins to flow upward. 
parents often notice an increased brightness and presence in the child. Sitting up expands the field of visual perception and consequently the size of the world, marking the beginning of the second chakra. Other first chakra developments continue, however, such as increasing body weight, developing motor coordination, and strengthening the legs in preparation for walking. Soon, the child creeps, crawls, and walks, standing at last on her own two feet with some degree of vertical independence. The fundamental building blocks of the individual life have been created, and the child is ready to explore the world through her senses and movement, opening the exciting realm of chakra two. So, in interest of keeping this episode short, I'm just going to end it there. I read a mere, like, four pages, <laughs> um, and I... I also want to address some of the traumas and abuses of the chakras, so I think I'll do that in another episode. Um, that was a lot, I feel like, to take in. And as a young baby in this world, can you imagine what that feels like to take in? Going back to what she invited us to do at the beginning of that reading to imagine ourselves coming out of the safety of the womb coming it's like coming out of the warmth of our bed into like ice cold blistery territory where we've got to swim through ice water and there's bright lights at us and actually that kind of gets into um the next part of the chapter, um, how birth can be very traumatic. Um, and so even if it's, but even if it's not traumatic, it's a transition, like getting out of bed into your familiar room. That would be akin to coming out of the womb and being laid on your mother's chest. Oh, I touched the microphone there. Um, I'm going to record that. (laughs) So it would be like, getting out of bed, out of your warm bed where you had been safe and cozy in the morning and it's warm in your room and you get out and you feel safe and you put on your robe. That's like being the baby coming out of the womb and being put on your mother's chest. And you go to your your kitchen and you make a nice warm cup of coffee. Well, if you're the baby, you find your mother's breast and you're nourished and you feel good and you feel safe. Um, And so if those things don't happen, could you imagine if your very first morning of life was like suddenly like someone's got a bullhorn in your face and they're yelling at you to get out of bed and you've got to go like stand outside in the middle of the street naked and before you're allowed to go inside and make yourself a cup of coffee, like that's your first experience of life? Damn, like that's rough. (laughs) And it creates, I think, a real, well, the mistrust, right? So anyway, um, what I want to leave you with is maybe an invitation to think about what your first days of life were like. Do you know? Do you, have you ever done a womb meditation and gone back to see if you can remember that time? Maybe not consciously, but the body remembers. It does. All of this stuff that um, I'm talking about gets gets stored in the tissue. Um, And can you see how maybe your 
perspective on life, your, your sense of trust or mistrust, whether or not your needs are going to be fulfilled, how you address your own biological impulses, how, how just how that comes about in your day to day. Do you do it? Do you sit at your desk continuously working, even though you've had to pee for like half an hour? Um, do you take a drink of water when you need water or are you like, no, no, I'll wait, I'll wait. Do you just like work for hours on end and then you're like, oh man, I'm hungry. Um, and have you hoarded toilet paper and what might that say about your root chakra? Um, all right, I'm going to leave it at that and I'm going to put an offer out there again just because I think that these things, um, when we think about them for ourselves can be a little bit difficult to unravel and unwind. So speaking with someone who can reflect back to us what what's there can be really helpful. If you want some help figuring out maybe what your thoughts are on things or how maybe some of your behaviors are out of balance um, and maybe are actually underlying some anxiety that you're experiencing in this weird time of sheltering in place and COVID-19 and maybe thinking a little bit more about purpose of life and all those things, um, hit me up. I will be offering three free 25-minute reflection sessions now April 6th through April 20th. What is a reflection session, you might ask? A reflection session is taking those thoughts in your head that are causing anguish the anxious thoughts the thought loops the contradicting thoughts the all the thoughts of like oh my gosh I'm trapped I'm freaking out I don't know what to do I can't do this I always do that I never all of those things like taking your brain dumping it out or like presenting it in front of a mirror is how I think of it and then having a mirror reflect back to you this organized and new way of seeing things a way that's there a way that is is always there but is really hard to get to when all this noise is in the way and so in this instance I am just mirroring something mirroring the powerful you that I see mirroring the um, possibility within what you're going through, the possibility to feel better, to actually uh, have more of the comfort that you want, or to get the clarity that you're seeking. And it's kind of like sitting down with a friend, that's how a reflection session will go, and just saying, here's what's going on and then I will give you something back. The difference though between sitting down with a friend and doing this or a family member or someone you're close to is that I don't have a vested interest in you continuing to repeat some of these thought patterns. I am not going to judge you for any of these thought patterns and even though our friends and our family love us and they may actually have really good intentions for us and want to see us change, there's so much tied up in our relationships to them, so much energetic, emotional charge that sometimes it's hard for them to be a clear mirror, either for us to see them as a 
powerful reflector or for them to reflect accurately um, and not like a funhouse mirror. Uh, I hope that analogy is making sense. So um, that said, this offer of reflection sessions is not going to be appropriate for family. I love you, but um, you're probably better off to find a different mirror to look into. Um, But I do have a lot of experience in figuring out um, my own thoughts and, and witnessing myself, um, and getting through hard things and dealing with all the icky thoughts that come up with it. Like, oh my God, I'm going to die or I'm stuck or things will never be the same. And I have learned through my own experience and the teachers who have been able to reflect for me how to do this work. And in this time of uncertainty of COVID-19 and everything shaken up and um, are we're more alone I feel like with our minds and our emotions than ever Um, I feel that I can be of service in this way and so I'm offering this as a gift to the community I am going to be doing three 25 minute sessions per week from now April 6th until April 20th. So, and if you'd like to get in on those, um, you can follow me at Unraveling Rachel. There's a link in my profile there and it takes you to a calendar. You can also direct message me if you have any questions or if you want to talk further or if maybe you're like really interested in this kind of work, you don't feel comfortable working with me, I can point you in the direction of some other resources that I found very helpful. So I am thinking of you all out there, especially my friends out there on the front lines. And um, I hope that everyone stays well and stays safe and is able to stay relatively sane and find some serenity in this uncertain time. So if I can help in any way, reach out, book a reflection session, and let's make things as good as possible uh, right now in this crazy world that we're living in. Okay, till next time, lots of love to you all.